Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Neighborhood Church. Good to be with you all. I hope you got a handout. I'm not doing slides tonight. So would you grab a handout and a pen if you need it from my brother, Mark Sweet. Lift up a hand and he'll get you guys set up. As those handouts and pens are coming around, let me tell you what we're going to talk about tonight. You ready? Tonight, we're going to talk about lying and sin. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Welcome to the Neighborhood Church. The truth is, we're in between series, and before Lent begins, the season of giving and fasting and praying that precedes Easter, I want to share with you all a strange sermon for me to be sharing. It's a strange sermon because it's not the kind I'm usually preaching, where we read a passage and we talk about a passage and you get like three nuggets to take home. It's a different kind of sermon, and it's a sermon about lying and sin. So while you're getting those handouts, let me tell you something. As soon as children learn to talk, parents must become human lie detectors. Is this true? I see some parents nodding their heads. I see some teachers nodding their heads. Now, Amy and I were very blessed because we have two children who are bad liars. What I mean by that is not that, oh, they're so bad, they're lying all the time, they're just such bad liars. I mean, they're not good at lying. They're bad liars. They're terrible at it. Emma has a lie face. When she lies, her face contorts, her eyebrows kind of raise, and she does her mouth kind of like an O shape, like even her mouth knows that the words that are coming out are untrue. And you know how when you play poker and somebody's got to tell that kind of thing, hey, this person's bluffing, so easy. She's bad at lying. Nora's bad at lying too, but it's different. See, Nora, her track is to omit truth, okay? I think Nora's found the loophole of like, I'm not going to say a lie. I'm just not going to tell the truth. So here's how this works. This is how it worked this week. Amy was in the carpool lane. She was going to go pick up the girls. And while she was waiting, she pulled up a website in which we can see how much money is in their school lunch account. And because it's a wonderful day to be alive in 2020 with technology, it actually tells us what they ordered and ate, which is remarkable because Nora in kindergarten now has been fascinated with the school lunch. She's all about it. Every morning we wake up, what's on the menu? Yes, I'll have that. Yes. Here's the trick. When we started looking at that website, we realized that she's getting things, but she's not always eating the things. And so after Amy gets to the front of the carpool line, the girls come in. Oh, hey, hey. Oh, they're all excited. And they get settled. They're talking about their day. But we always have to have this conversation. And the conversation is, hey, Nora, how was lunch? What'd you eat? So here's Nora, the bad liar that omits truth. Ready? She goes, well, I had grapes and I ate some broccoli. Now, pause. 
This particular afternoon, when Amy was in the carpool lane and she was looking at that website, she noticed that that day, Nora bought chips. Not a big deal, except that her parents don't want her to buy chips. Chips are extra. They're add-ons. And when you buy chips, you eat chips. And when you eat chips, you don't eat what you're supposed to eat. So Nora gives her the report. I ate my grapes. I ate my broccoli. And then Amy goes... So did you eat your chips before or after your grapes? And Nora goes, I ate my chips before my grapes. And she stops dead in her tracks, realizes the human lie detector has snapped shut, locked down on her, and she recognizes that she was omitting truth about eating her whole lunch. And this reminds me to thank God that our two children are terrible liars because it's easy to sniff out when they're lying. Here's the deal. We know and have worked with older kids and teenagers our whole adult life, it's going to be harder, okay? We know it's going to be harder and harder. I understand this, but just give me this for a moment. At least now, we know it. Here's the deal. Sometimes it's hard to detect lies. And I need to tell you this. You're lied to every single day. We all are lied to every single day day. And not just by the people that are sitting around you or the people you work with. We're lied to, I think, from two primary sources. The first is our own heart. Our own heart can deceive us and we can get these thoughts that bubble up to our head that are half-truths or maybe even straight-up untruths. But our own heart can deceive us and lie to us about what we want, need, think, Is this true? But not only are we lied to within, I think we're lied to without. The second primary source of our lies are these shadowy, dark forces that have operated in this world that are continually deceiving and dragging people away from true life. Maybe you've heard the term demons or evil forces The world is just kind of going this way where we get this kind of deception from without that often reinforces the deception within. We're lied to every day. And here's another trick. I think we're all getting the same lies. I think we're all getting the same two lies, in fact. And the thing is that these two lies are really, really hard to detect So most days we believe the two lies. Tonight I'm going to tell you what those two lies are, but not yet. Raise your hand if you've heard that game, uh, Two Truths and a Lie, right? It's that icebreaker game. Show of hands if you hate that game. Because you're like, what am I going to say? You think of three statements. Two of them are true statements about you. And one of them is a lie. And the game is to suss out and detect the lie. Tonight, we're not playing two truths and a lie. We're flipping it. We've got two lies that we've got to detect before we get to the truth. So here's why this sermon is different. Not just because I don't have slides and not because I haven't read a passage yet. This is going to be different because I'm going to tell you a story from Scripture. And we're going to suss out two lies. At the end of my talk, I'm going to read portions of a passage of Scripture to suss out the one truth. 
That's what we're up to. A story about two lies, and then we're going to read a passage about the truth that can dismantle and help us as we navigate this world, because I hate being lied to. You with me? All right. First, the story. This is a story of the two lies. You ready? This is a story that many of you are going to be familiar with, especially if you made a New Year's resolution to read the Bible, and you started at the first book of the Bible, which is Genesis. So if you did that, you would have read these poems at the beginning of Genesis that talk about the God who created everything in the world. And God said it is what? Good. This is wonderful news. He didn't create something that's bad or shoddy or terrible. He created something that was good. It brought him delight. And he made us, humanity, in a special way. God made mankind in his own what? Image. I love that. This is good news, right? Here's the trick. Whatever it means to be made in God's image, in these poems at the beginning of Genesis, we learn it means at least two things, okay? This is why you have pins in case you want to write this down. This will come up later. Whatever it means to be made in God's image, it means two things. Ready? To be in relationship with God. The second thing is to be in partnership with God. Whatever it means to be made in the image of God, it means at least two things. To be in relationship with God, to be in partnership with God. God creates the first human called Adam. Because if God could have picked all the names in the universe, he had to pick the best name, and he picked Adam. Which means from the dirt. But still, it's a pretty good name. So he brings up Adam, and he puts him in the middle of his beautiful creation, and he says, hey, Let's kind of do this thing together. You and me in a relationship, and then you and me in a partnership. God could have kept everything spinning and humming along just fine, but he wanted us to work with him. This is remarkable. So then he puts Adam in the center of this garden. He says, till it, work it, do your thing. I'm here, you know, we'll kick it on the Sabbath and rest. And it's going to be great. You and me and the whole world and all these animals. Man, this is beautiful, right? Oh, I need to tell you this thing, okay? In the middle of this garden is two trees. One of them's called the tree of life. We hear about that at the end of the Bible, but that's not what we're talking about tonight. The second tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's something really fascinating. Never hear about that tree again. But it's a pretty big deal because with all this remarkable freedom that God gives Adam, go and eat this and kind of take care of that, go name those animals, go party with them and then rest with me, all the remarkable freedom, all the permission, hear me, just one prohibition, okay? Remarkable freedom and permission one prohibition. Now, this is so fascinating because a lot of people read these poems and say, look, right there, right at the bat, or off the bat, God is always trying to run our life. And it's so hilarious because literally, you get one prohibition. Don't eat the fruit of that one tree. 
but you get all the other trees, all the other plants, all the other space, all the other paradise, be in life with me, work with me. We've got all this remarkable freedom and permission, but please just don't do that. And I think it's really instructive because lest we think that it's just our world to do with what we want, you still gotta recognize that it's God's world and he might know something that we don't. Remarkable permission, one prohibition. Eat anything from anywhere but that one tree and that fruit. So things are rocking along and then God in his good world, all of a sudden we see that something's not good. You remember what's not good? For man to be alone. This is interesting too because we just sang that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God himself is in relationship, in Trinity. So then God makes one dude, even though he's got the best name in the world, Adam, he needs a community too. And so then what God does is put some anesthetics on Adam, puts him to sleep, and does some surgery and takes a rib, and from this rib he forms woman. So when Adam comes to, he does what any of us would do by seeing this helper and companion and community. He freaks out, he's overjoyed, he's excited because the beavers and the, uh, the prairie dogs and the leopards have not been great companions to him. He's overjoyed to see this person, this thing that reflects God's image, but also reflects something of what makes him, him. And so he erupts into a love poem, Happy Valentine's Day. And he looks at this woman and he says, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, you will be called woman for you were taken out of man. There's something intrinsic about how we're so similar but yet different and we complement and there's unity and there's diversity. It's this beautiful thing. That word man in Hebrew is ish. And the word woman in Hebrew is isha. There's this beautiful sense in which you complete me. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> Everything is pretty awesome. And the end of Genesis chapter 2 says this strange note that's going to be kind of important. It's a strange note because the man and woman were naked and yet they were unashamed. That's true love. And everything was good. The very next words of scripture introduces a tension. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said, a serpent talking, weird, what does he say? Did God really say? Did God really say? Eve, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God say that? He said, you've got this remarkable freedom and permission. Just don't eat from one tree. Of all the things that God created, the serpent created something else. You ready for it? Doubt. Here they are in relationship and partnership with God. Everything is rocking and rolling. Everything is going well. And all of a sudden, this little serpent comes in, and it's a talking serpent. What the heck is up with that? I don't know. And he says, did God really say? Some of you know this, not even in a spiritual sense. Did, did my spouse really say? Did that 
coworker of mine really say? And begins this unraveling where these half-truths and untruths start to germinate around God's good creation. And if the serpent creates doubt, Eve is about to create something too. Because she responds and says, no, 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 actually, we can't eat from any tree except that one. And God said we can't even touch it. Did God say that? If the serpent created doubt, Eve begins to create religion. Because we love to take the one thing that God says and make lots of things about it. But that's another sermon. The serpent says, no, no, you're not going to die. God knows that your eyes are going to be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Hence the name of the tree, you might have seen this, Eve, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're not going to die. You're just going to have your eyes open and you're going to be like God. So Eve begins to ponder this thing within what she's heard without, these half-truths, these doubts, and she begins to operate in what God has given her, and that is a freedom to choose. And she looks at the fruit, and because the fruit is pleasant to look at and pleasing to the eye, by the way, we don't know what kind of fruit it is, but I bet all of you are thinking of an apple, right? She's looking at the apple. Oh, sorry. We don't know what kind of fruit it is. I'm just kidding. She's looking at the fruit, It looks good. It might do something cool and new. So she eats it. Then Adam eats it. And here's what wasn't one of the two lies. Their eyes were opened. The serpent was right. Their eyes were opened. And all of a sudden, those two that were naked and unashamed, all of a sudden look and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. we are naked. And they felt shame. For the first time, They feel shame. So what shame does is cause them to hide their nakedness from one another, and then they begin to hide from God. I need you to hear this. There's a difference between shame and guilt. You ready? Here's what it is. Guilt says, I did bad. Shame says, I am bad. Guilt is able to differentiate that I'm made in the image of God and I did a dumb thing. Shame says I must not be made in the image of God. I am a bad thing. You need to understand that shame drove them to hide from God and hide from others. And why that's so dangerous is when we go and hide in the corner, what shame needs to grow is darkness. What shame needs is for you to go into that cave and go into that corner and spiral out. And I need you to know this right now. Shame is not ever from God. The shame that you feel and the shame that you carry that says I am bad is a lie from the serpent who's been deceiving since the beginning. You need to understand this because God goes looking for them. And you heard it said 
that the fall, or whatever this came to be known as, that God was so ticked that he turned his back on Adam and Eve, and the rest of human history is us trying to get back into good graces with a God who's pissed off at us. And I'm here to tell you the story sounds like this. Where are you? I'm coming for you. Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from that tree? God pursues the ones who go and hide in the darkness and shame so that he might bring them to the light and restore them to their proper relationship and partnership with God. So they're talking again face to face and Adam does what this Adam does and he starts to blame somebody else. Uh, uh, Eve made me do it. And then Eve is like, dude, are you for real right now? And she goes, uh, uh, the serpent made me do it. And so what happens next in Genesis chapter three is the serpent is cursed and woman is cursed and man is cursed. And what Jason preached about last week in bringing peace, peace is a Hebrew word, shalom, which is a word that means everything is as it ought to be. And even more than that, everything is not just how it ought to be, it's flourishing, it's good. It looks like Genesis 1 and 2. If that was shalom, what happened after that, doubt and deception and betrayal and shame, now there's this imbalance and everything is starting to unravel. That's what we've inherited. We've inherited an unraveled paradise. We've inherited strain in our relationships with one another and strain in our relationships with God and creation. Have we lived up to our vocation of being in partnership with God to care for his good creation? No. Why? Because you know what else we inherited? The freedom to choose. The freedom to choose to love God or to not love God. The freedom to choose to love each other or not love each other. We also inherited the freedom to listen to God or to not listen to God. And so there's a word attached to that unraveling in the Bible, and it's called sin. So, this leads to my two lies. I think these two lies or at the root of all of that unraveling that we call sin. Here's the lies. The first is that God is not good. The first is that God is not good. The second is that God is not enough. The second is that God is not enough. Genesis 1 and 2, everything is good. They're in relationship with God and when it's not good, God makes it good, and he gives Eve, and things are wonderful, but then all of a sudden, these lies and these half-truths start to creep up from within and without, and we begin to dismantle that idea that maybe, maybe really, though, really, and then God is not enough, you know, to be in partnership with him and to live with him and with all of this freedom and all of this permission, but is it enough, Really? Here's this core idea that I want you guys to go with me with here. I think sin is what happens fundamentally when we believe the lies that God is not good and that God is not enough. 
Let's test this idea with some big picture sins, okay? Y'all remember what like the next egregious sin is in the story of Genesis? So Adam and Eve have kids and they have two sons. And what happens when one of the sons gets so angry, it boils over, he kills his brother. Let's take the sin of hate and even anger and murder. Here's what it looks like. You know, in you and I today, did God really say, love your neighbor? Did God really say, love your enemy? Did God really say to forgive and work toward reconciliation? Does God really want me to release this anger and release this frustration? Does God really want me to do that? Because how I feel right now is that it feels better to stoke this and work with this. And if God was really good, then why doesn't he fix this? Why doesn't he take care of this? Why can't I get over this? And if God was really enough, why can't I release all this rage? And you know what? Screw that. I'd rather just take my matters into my own hands. Because if God was really good and if God was really enough, I wouldn't feel this and this wouldn't happen to me. Let's take greed. Did God really say he knows what you need before you even ask and you know he's going to give you what you need and he's going to provide for you and don't covet and don't steal, don't take. Does God really say all that mess? Because if God was really good, then I'd also have everything that I want. And if God was really enough, then why after spending and spending and spending and taking and taking and taking and keeping and keeping and keeping, do I still have this bottomless hole in my heart? If God was really enough, you know what? Forget it. I'd rather just take matters into my own hands. And we look around at this world and we see what Gandhi says, that there's enough for everyone's need, but not enough for everyone's greed. And then we blame God, even though we're the ones believing the lies, that he's not good, he's not enough, so I'm going to take what's mine. How about lust and adultery? Lust is seeing a person as an object to be used and not a person to be loved. To see this person as someone to consume instead of an image bearer of God. Did God really say don't covet your neighbor's wife? Did God really say you shall not commit adultery and rip apart these families and these covenants that God, did God really say all that? And did Jesus really say that anybody who lusts in his heart is basically, it's just like committing the act physically? Because if God was good, then I, he would be cool if I did whatever with whomever. And if God was really enough, well, he's the one that gave me these urges and appetites, and God is the one who created sex. So, you know, if he was really enough, then the more and more I take, then, then why is it that the more and more I want? You know what, just forget it. I'm gonna go do my own thing with whomever whenever, and whatever. I think sin is what happens when we believe the lies, fundamentally, that God is not good and that God is not enough. And so here's what you need to understand. Sin begins with the temptation. So the invitation is to train ourselves to see 
every temptation for what it is, a lie. That's a blank. See, every temptation for what it is, a lie. It's a shiny object, a mirage that you think will promise you satisfaction and all this goodness because God must not be good and it will give you enough because God must not be enough and you all of a sudden happen upon the mirage to see that it was actually empty. And in that way, all those things that look pleasing to the eye, hear me, is really just a reenactment of the first sin when we doubt God's goodness and God being enough. So here, we're placed in this world with enormous permission and some prohibitions. Here's why. God knows something that we don't. God knows that we will actually surely die. Now what happened to Adam and Eve is what happens to us the more and more we distance from God, who is the source of life. The more we travel the road to death, we read it in Psalm 1 earlier, the more we sit and stand and walk in the ways that are apart and separate from God, who is the source of life, the more we are headed toward the end, which is death. Paul, centuries later, will say it this way. The wages of sin is death, which means essentially this. If you live your whole life working for sin and believing the lie and going away from God, your paycheck, 401k, retirement, social security, at the end of the road is death. I don't preach about this a whole lot, and I don't preach about what I'm about to say a lot. Let me tell you what hell is. Hell is God grievously giving people what they've chosen, and that is death and separation apart from the God who is life and light and love. I do not believe that the God who says, love your enemies as yourself, is the same God who will keep them alive indefinitely, torturing them. I think that the wages of sin is death, and I think that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I believe that Paul says in Timothy, God alone is immortal. And anything that we get that's eternal life is a gift that's given. Everything else, you're not promised. And at the end of the age when we're all raised and the unrighteous are raised up, he's going to judge us and he's going to say, you've made death in yourself and on this earth and this is what you want, this is what you've chosen, and he grievously gives them what they want, which is a death that is eternal in consequence and we call it hell. And I think that they will cease to be, cease to exist This is how I read the scriptures, and we can talk about that another time, but I just think if we're talking about the wages of sin, it's death. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life. This is serious. And we're going around believing quietly and in smaller and smaller ways that God, you aren't good, because if I really believed it, I don't think I would do this. And God, you're not enough, because if I really believed it, then I wouldn't keep doing this. He knows what we don't. And we keep trafficking that road before we ever wind up in death. We're going to wind up with more shame and more fear and more scarcity. 
We're going to be afraid of God. We're going to think that he doesn't have enough. And we're going to keep living over there because he won't want us. Those are the two lies, and that's the bad news. So I'm going to pause and tell you a parable that I borrowed from Tom Wright when he was reflecting upon the passage I'm about to read to you at the end of my talk before we get to the truth. Here's my parable. Imagine a small town that lost a local hero. You know, one of those civic leaders that everybody loves. There's a school named after him, a street named after him. His family's been here for generations. He loved all the people, and he worked his whole life to cultivate this community and be a good neighbor and do all the things right. So when he died, the town got together, and they said, we need to pay some money to set up a statue in his honor. So they commissioned a sculptor, and the sculptor comes in and puts together all of the materials that you would need to put this thing in the town square. Looked just like him, made in his image, if you will. And the whole town celebrates this commandment of this wonderful person. Well, not a week goes by when in the middle of the night, in the wee hours, there's some young folks looking for trouble. They wander down Main Street, find their way in the town square, see that brand new statue, and they begin to throw rocks at it. And they do what you might expect, kind of smear mud and paint, and they're laughing and cutting up and having a good time. And they run out of rocks, they run out of paint, so they start to kick it and poke it and hang on it. And then they start to feel it give a little bit. So they begin to pull and pull until finally the whole thing topples over, shatters, is completely just ruined. You can see what it used to be. You can see the face here and the, the, um, the visage there. And you can see all this kind of stuff. But ultimately, man, it's, it's just kind of trashed. So they go off laughing and the sun rises, the town begins to bustle back to life and everyone goes into the town square and is horrified because the statue is trashed. So the town council gets together and they're livid. They're like, how dare they? This can't stand. We've got to honor his memory and this was a crowning jewel of the center of our town and so we have got to show them and put up a new statue. So they call that sculptor back. Sculptor comes back and they say, make us a new sculpture. And the sculptor says, I'll make you a new one. But here's the trick. I'm going to make it with stronger materials because the materials I used weren't up for the punishment that that thing took. And then ultimately, I'm going to make this thing so marvelous, so wonderful, nobody would even think in their right mind, to paint, smear, destroy it. The same raw materials, the same image, but this is not some duplicate that's restored. This is an image that's remade. I need you to understand that God the sculptor did not trash his image, even though it had been beaten, kicked, and messed with for generations God did not turn his back even on Adam and Eve. He sought them, clothed them, protected them. And even in those first poems, God promised recreation and to defeat the evils that marred the original statue. So that brings us to the truth. 
You know, Genesis 3, for as big as it is in theology in the West, Genesis 1 and 2, as big as it is in evangelical and fundamental kind of science versus religion debates, you got to understand that Genesis 1 to 3 doesn't get a lot of airtime in the rest of the pages of Scripture, except for Paul in his letter to the Romans. Paul builds a case that is his own parable of how the first statue gets wrecked and marred by sin and death and evil. That's the first four chapters of Romans. And then he picks up this thread of Romans 5, and he's going to talk about how while that first statue, which is humanity, has been marred because they've gone their own way, they believe the lies, which leads to sin, and ultimately at the end of the road, it leads to death, I'm going to tell you about the second statue. You heard the story about the first Adam, let me tell you about the second Adam, Here's the trick. God did not look at the wreckage of the first statue and say, you know what? What they knocked down, God's just gonna super glue and put back together. Stay with me. God did not look at the wreckage of the first uh, statue shattered and broken and say, you know what? What they got messy, God's just gonna clean up. God did not 409 away our mess. In Jesus Christ, God has remade the statue in its entirety, and he's invited all of humanity to be remade in him. If you look at your handout, new humanity is restored when we give all our remarkable permissions to his way. Because the world around us is what happens when you don't care for creation, you don't love your neighbor, you don't give and love and forgive. So we want to renew humanity by following the way of Jesus, the ultimate second statue, who was man in God's image, but also God himself. And then when we begin to hear his voice calling out to a new kingdom, a new kind of truth that is superseded all of the other kingdoms clamoring for attention and resources and war and violence. And he says, let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like. That's truth. And then when we see generation after generation stumbling over the edge into death, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through me. The way is a person. The truth is a person. The life is a person. And salvation is your willingness to be in relationship with him or not. Read your Bible and see the person. Pray and pray to the person. Live your life in the person. Jesus didn't come to show us how to be spiritual. Jesus came to show us how to be truly, fully, faithfully human. What does it look like to be in relationship with God and partnership with God? It looks like Jesus. Our church is built on the Bible and this and this new law. 
if it's not built on Jesus, the head, the second Adam, the one who the Bible points to and reveals, you're going to be real confused. It's Jesus. He didn't show us how to be more spiritual and get some principles to go consume and walk away and just go about the rest of your week. He's cultivating a new body with a new humanity because he's showing us how to truly live. So we can go and eat with our neighbors and give them clothes and give them food only if we're going to tell them this is how God has always intended it and we're just working the clock back. Excuse me, we're working the clock forward to a destiny when it's gonna be even better than the garden. You need to understand that Jesus not only shows us, he made it possible because we cannot re-ravel shalom with kids' coats and uniforms on our own. We cannot deal with sin by hearing confessions of our friends and neighbors and loved ones on our own. We cannot defeat death on our own. We needed the true human, the second statue, the second Adam to restore humanity. And so here's the truth, the good news. What humanity lost is not just found, it's found and then some in Christ. Where there was once shame, there's now security that you're at peace with God. Where there was once scarcity, see in the Father through the riches of Jesus Christ pouring out his grace immeasurably more than all you can ask or imagine. Where there was once fear that God is going to get me, you find him seeking you, running to you, and you see that perfect love can cast out fear. And if you don't believe me, after Paul paints the picture of how the lies have wrecked and ravaged our world in the first four chapters, he opens up Romans chapter 5 by saying this. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory even in our sufferings because we know something the world doesn't. We know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, and that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, and very rarely will anyone die for a good person, though someone might possibly dare to die But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There was not one thing you could do because God has done it all. You could try to re-ravel the wreckage of your life You could try to re-ravel the wreckage in our neighborhood and in our families, but Christ has died to bring us peace, to restore our vocation and relationship with God and others, to be partners with him. And he didn't just gussy it up, he renewed it. And I believe the only time we're separated from him is in our minds when we believe the lies that he's not enough and he's not good. And if you start to see every temptation as a lie, 
You start to train yourself in perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope that you're actually headed somewhere. And in Christ, you're brought close to the Father. So he closes that parable, that illustration. And I want you to look in the handout. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts this in the message. Romans 5, verses 15 to 17. You need to know that the rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. If one man's sin put crowds of people at the dead-end abyss of separation from God, just think what God's gift poured through one man Jesus Christ will do. There's no comparison between that death-dealing sin and this generous, life-giving gift. The verdict on that one sin was the death sentence. The verdict on the many sins that followed was this wonderful life sentence. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes, sovereign life, in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, this grand setting everything right that one man, Jesus Christ, provides. You have been given everything you need in Jesus. So be loved as God's beloved. Forgiven, set right, at peace, be loved as God's beloved. If you thought the one sin really messed us up, how much more the sacrificial life, death, and resurrection of Jesus can overflow and remake and renew. You thought that was bad? Look how good and how much better this is. So you need not believe the lie. Because some of you think, I'm not good and I'm not enough. And he died for you. I'm not good, I need to hide, and he's seeking you. I can't live this way, he's with you, he's within you. You need not believe the lie, you can live in this truth. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this opportunity to come and be reminded of the good news that just keeps getting bigger and better. We thank you for the life that is on offer. We thank you for Jesus, the Son of God, who came and moved into our neighborhood, not just to clean us up, but to renew and remake us and all things as the kingdom of God comes on earth as it is in heaven and in our own hearts. We pray that we would be fully awake and grab with both hands this life-giving gift that we would know that we are saved, we are being saved, and one day we will be saved for we have said yes to you. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Tonight's benediction is adapted from Romans 5, 1 through 2 in the message. May we throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that he has already thrown open his door to us. May we find ourselves standing where we always hoped we might stand, out in the wide open spaces of God's grace and glory, standing tall and shouting our praises. Go in peace. <laughs>